Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. The recent terror wave in Israel has sadly continued over the past week with a deadly attack on Tel Aviv's Dizengoff Street, claiming the lives of three Israelis last Thursday night. As Israel heads into Passover week, no one can be quite sure it won't be the last attack. To help us make sense of where things stand right now, we have with us today Amos Harel, Haaretz's veteran military correspondent. I spoke with Amos about the recent security escalation, the Israeli response, some good news amongst all the bad, and at the end we also got into Iran and Ukraine. As he's done on this podcast before, Amos broke things down clearly and, dare we say, calmly. Let's get into it. Hi, Amos. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, Neri. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, I know it's probably a busy period for you these days, and we have to start, I think, with uh, the recent news of recent weeks, which is this terror wave. And I think now it's uh, certainly apt to call it a wave or an escalation, right? With four attacks in less than three weeks. Uh, we saw in Be'er Sheva, Hadera, Bnei Brak, and Tel Aviv last week. Uh, we should tell our listeners we're taping this on a Wednesday morning, so things could change uh, between now and when this episode goes up. Uh, I want to say probably for the worse. But I think the big question in everyone's mind and a good place to start is, why in your mind is all this happening now, right? What's behind it? Israeli officials are calling this uh, and described it as uncoordinated attacks undertaken by lone wolves or small cells with no real organizational backing behind them. So what do you make of this recent deadly escalation here? For the time being, I think uh, their description is quite accurate. Uh, this uh, wave of attacks began with uh, Daesh, uh, ISIS sympathizers, who are Arab uh, Israelis, who have Israeli citizenship in two cases, one in Beersheba and one in Khadera. And all three perpetrators were um, identified to some extent uh, with ISIS. Uh, two of them uh, spent time in Israeli jails for illegal uh, contact with uh, ISIS abroad, uh, attempting to go and fight the, the, the war in Syria and so on. And in these cases, it's quite clear that um, Shin Bet missed them, that they should have been the, on the radar of, uh, of the Shin Bet, of our internal uh, security agency, and that somehow this was uh, missed. Although, um, as I said, two of the attackers were uh, in Israeli jails uh, before. Later on, what we encountered, I think, are um, copycat attacks. And um, then uh, these were Palestinians, young Palestinians coming from mostly from the Janin area and the northern West Bank. And in both cases, in Nebrak and later on in Tel Aviv, um, these were uh, lone perpetrators, as you said, lone wolf attacks, uh, no clear organizational identity, perhaps a certain background in Islamic Jihad, but not uh, members of the organization. They might have uh, received some assistance before uh, arriving in central Israel, but other than that, it's, um, it appears that they've acted on their own. I think what we see now is that every attack uh, is um, um, a continuation of, of the previous one. Uh, these are, as I said, copycat attacks. Once one succeeds, especially if it's on prime time, if it's uh, broadcasted on every Israeli TV channel and it creates uh, such a, a wave of response, then other young Palestinians are encouraged uh, to do the same. It, ha it hasn't happened for a while, mostly because things were in a sort of a deadlock. Um, you may say that the deadlock would uh, inspire people to, to, to violence, but in other cases, when you think of most of the Palestinian population in the West Bank, as bad as they have it with the Israeli occupation, they can still can compare their everyday lives with Gaza or even with Jordan and Lebanon. And in most cases, I'm not sure that too many people are happy to, to risk their lives, sacrifice their lives for uh, a jihadi uh, attack. But once a wave starts, it's very hard to restrain it and to uh, stop it because um, young people are uh, affected quite easily by this. Now, the problem from the Israeli side, of course, is that because uh, they don't come from any kind of organization, they don't receive orders from anybody, and because they're smarter now than they were five or six years ago in previous uh, similar waves, 
they don't leave um, much uh, signs of their uh, original plans. And if they don't post anything on Facebook or they don't uh, make waves while um, trying to purchase a weapon or anything like that, it's hard for Shimbet and for military intelligence to receive a, a prior notice of, of their plans. And this is what happening, what's happening now. They're struggling with this. Um, it's not a new concept, but it's a new challenge of the uh, modern-day lone wolves, if you like. Um, what happened recently is the fact that uh, the, the latest two attacks um, uh, were engineered by uh, people from Janine, Mm -hmm. gave the idea for the first time a sort of an address, uh, a return address. Uh, there was suddenly something to do because you, at least uh, you knew where these people uh, had come from. And so in recent days, we see constant um, daily operations uh, by the IDF and the Shin Bet, arrests mostly, but every time they, they do enter Janine, and especially the refugee camp in the city, they encounter... Um, um, armed uh, resistance of the different uh, Palestinian organizations. These are the actual military organizations, whether it's Islamic Jihad or Hamas or uh, even uh, the, the military wing of uh, Fatah. And of course, it gets bloodier. More and more uh, people are killed um, on, the, on the Palestinian side, mostly gunmen. But this, uh, you know, the, the fact that the, the price is higher means that there will be more bloodshed in the, in the future, in, in the next few days. Right. As we're taping this on, like I said, Wednesday morning, uh, there seems to be a fairly large IDF operation in the northern West Bank, in uh, Janine, Nablus, Tulkarim, uh, with uh, uh, friction, shall we say, being reported. Uh, we'll see how that turns out likely after this episode ends. Uh, so just to focus on the Israeli response so far, you said that there's now this return address, quote unquote, uh, in Janine and the northern West Bank, where uh, two of the attackers came from. Uh, we've seen IDF uh, daytime operations uh, into Janine and into the Janine refugee camp. Uh, we've seen IDF battalions moved into the West Bank, uh, shoring up also the seam zone between Israel and the West Bank. Uh, and in general, just a heightened state of alert here in Israel. Uh, but at the same time, the IDF and the Israeli government have actually striven to maintain economic life in the West Bank, and also, we should say, Gaza, uh, along with uh, various Ramadan easing measures. So basically, there, there hasn't been a general closure so far over the West Bank, except maybe around Janine. So do you think this is a, uh, a relatively reasonable response by the Israeli government and the authorities to, to the terror wave? As far as I can tell, yes, I don't think they have much choice. On the one hand, they need to react, and there's an, um, uh, some sense of public urgency. There's really public uh, demands, some kind of retaliation, and is expecting to see uh, the different security forces working to um, um, to uh, reestablish a sense of uh, personal security uh, in, in central Israeli uh, towns. And the way to do that, if you don't have any kind of uh, accurate pinpoint intelligence about um, somebody who is about to act is, is, is to make uh, those, to go for these raids and for those arrests in, in, in the Northern West Bank. Although I have to say, this is limited for the time being. There are battalions uh, deployed there, but it's nothing like a defensive shield, that famous military operation in the middle of the Second Intifada, where um, Israel just threw in tens of thousands of soldiers inside the West Bank, five different divisions, and actually reoccupied most West Bank towns in April 2002. This is quite different uh, this time. These are limited activities. They happen on a daily basis, but they don't occupy territory. They uh, go inside Janine or Nablus, do what they are told to do, and get out within, within a few hours. On the other hand, as you've mentioned, uh, they are trying to keep a sense of normalcy regarding the general uh, Palestinian population because most of the population hasn't joined in yet. Uh, there are copycat attacks, as we've mentioned, but these are, you know, these are numbered. These are perhaps dozens of uh, young Palestinians who are attempting uh, such attacks. It's not the, the whole Palestinian public. And the general, um, the, the common wisdom right now among Israeli decision makers is that if you have 120,000 people who work on a daily basis with a permit inside Israeli borders from 67, inside what we call the Green Line, then they should keep their jobs and 
as much as, as possible for the time being, because the fact that they bring in salaries and money back to the West Bank families is more important, and it actually helps to keep them out of the cycle of uh, violence. Now, this has been tried before. I've mentioned there was a previous wave of quite similar attacks in 2015, 2016. The lone wolf intifada, the knife intifada, quote-unquote. Yeah, although at that time I attempted to uh, reframe it as a sort of a third intifada, and in in retrospect I was wrong. It never materialized into a full-scale intifada. It was a wave of attacks that took somewhere between six to eight months, and then it died down gradually. And this happened because of three different reasons. One is that um, Israel improved its uh, technological surveillance of such long wolves' uh, attempts, mostly uh, following uh, social media. Two is that gradually the Palestinian security forces, uh, uh, on orders from uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, started to cooperate and started to warn families of youngsters who were contemplating such attacks and so on. And three, and perhaps most importantly, um, Israel, at that time we had the chief of staff, uh, Gadi Eisenkot, and he was uh, behind this uh, policy of refusing any kind of collective punishment. Again, it was a right-wing government led by Netanyahu at that time. Uh, there was a lot of pressure from the right-wing uh, branch of the government, from the rightest of uh, right-wingers, to um, the most extreme, to for collective punishment and closures and so on, it didn't happen because uh, Eisenkot kept telling them, "Look, I can deal with that. I can deal with lone wolves attacks as long as I don't have to deal with the whole population. If you throw them back home and uh, forbid them to come and work, then they'll have nothing else to do but to fight with us." And it turned out that he was right. And now under Bennett, Bennett seems to follow in the same footsteps for now. The change is that even Shin Bet, which is usually considered the most conservative of these agencies, and always it's always about, for the Shin Bet, it's always about preventing terrorism and nothing else, it's willing to go along for the time being. It says, okay, yes, we can risk a Palestinian work in Israel, and we can continue with that while we deal with the actual terrorists. Having said all that, uh, you have to remember that next week is Passover. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saturday night is actually Friday, and so I assume that we'll have a full closure in a ter- lockdown in the territories for uh, for a week, right? Uh, but this is this is done every year. Uh, it's not because of the current terrorist wave, but it's what's usually done uh, during uh, Israeli and uh, Jewish holidays. I assume that if nothing serious happens, if there are not too many attacks, then the workers will come back to Israel after Passover. After Passover, right? Um, so. I don't want to make it all uh, doom and gloom and bad news. Uh, I think there is some good news even after these several very difficult weeks, which is uh, Gaza has remained quiet despite this uh, escalation. Uh, Jerusalem has remained relatively quiet even uh, as the terror attacks continue and Ramadan obviously is is upon us. Uh, We haven't seen mass demonstrations in the West Bank and aside from really the the tension and the friction in the northern West Bank, uh, the rest of that region has remained relatively quiet. I stress relatively. So am I right in thinking that so far this can be considered relatively good news, that the rest of these areas haven't actually joined in in this escalation, say, similar to what we saw last year? Uh, in the lead up and then during the the Gaza war. Sure, as long as you mention again that we're talking on uh, Wednesday morning and things can change <laughs> quite rapidly. Yes. Uh, but yes, uh, it's interesting. Um, Hamas, for the time being, uh, has chosen to, to stay out of this. Uh, they are, of course, encouraging violence and terrorism uh, through their uh, different TV and radio channels. But uh, Yechia Sinwal, the leader of uh, Hamas and Gada has kept a relatively low profile. And as far as we can tell, um, he's um, uh, restraining other groups, uh, mostly Islamic Jihad, from launching rockets uh, to Israel. Islamic Jihad is quite strong at the northern um, uh, uh, northern West Bank, at the Jenin area, and some of its gunmen were killed in different incidents with the IDF in the last two weeks. And yet we haven't seen any response from Gaza, something that we have... Um, experienced before. And this is because um, I, I think it's probably easier right now for Sinwal to have it both ways, to encourage terrorism in the West Bank and in Jerusalem while uh, maintaining 
calm along the Gaza border because we're receiving quite a lot of assistance from the Arab world, Qatari money, but, uh, but and, and and different uh, kinds of help, but also the fact that Israel is not um, objecting to um, uh, various um, projects in Gaza right now. It's uh, presumably Hamas has a lot to lose and doesn't want to engage right now. Um, Yet, if there are incidents in Jerusalem, and you remember, you've mentioned that Guardian of the Walls last May began exactly like that. Incidents in Jerusalem, in Ramadan, a Hamas decision in Gaza to launch six rockets towards Jerusalem, and an Israeli response, which brought about uh, the 11 days of uh, war or or, uh, large-scale operation in Gaza uh, last year. This can happen again. It seems as if it's not of it's not Hamas's interest right now, but you know it, it could it could escalate very very quickly if there is a decision to act uh, by Islamic Jihad uh, leadership, and if Hamas doesn't notice or doesn't mind, then we can find ourselves in a very different situation. I should also mention, and you know, and again, this is correct for for the time being, that the Jerusalem police seems to be much more cautious uh, this year. My colleague uh, Neil Hassan who reports on Jerusalem, wrote an, uh, an excellent article in Aretz uh, a few days ago, describing the way the, the police has learned some of the lessons of um, last year and are now showing more restraint. And it seems to be that although there are those uh, celebrations every night at the old city around the Nablus Gate and so on, it seems that things are relatively under control and we haven't seen the major uh, acts of violence that could have led to... to, to uh, future escalation. But when you talk to people in Shin Bet and in the IDF, they're worried about three scenarios. One is Jerusalem, the second is some kind of reaction from Gaza, and the third is right-wing Jewish extremists, mm. because uh, we have seen attempts um, uh, to um, uh, to hit mosques or to uh, damage uh, cars and uh, Palestinian uh, houses and so on in different villages in, in the Nablus area. And if something like this becomes more serious, if they, instance, they, for instance, they uh, burn down a mosque or kill people uh, in, in, in a sort of a, a retaliation attack or something like that, then we may find ourselves in a very different boat. Right. Uh, so room for, for concern, but, uh, but so far we're not, uh, we're not quite there yet. Uh, just on the Jerusalem issue, it, I think we should also stress that it's a, a different government in power than the one last May and a very different internal security minister. Uh, if last year it was uh, Amir Ochana's uh, Israel police force, the uh, Likud senior minister, now the police are led by internal security minister Omer Balev from Labour. And I think that also shouldn't be discounted, that a different government and a different minister perhaps give different guidance to how the police should act in East Jerusalem. Yes, we, we should also mention, of course, that Bennett is under uh, in a very tight uh, corner right now, that it works both ways, both on the political level, and I'm sure you've covered that, the, the current political crisis, the fact that he's lost his majority at the Knesset, mm-hmm. and also he's facing this new wave of attacks. So he's in the worst period of his uh nine-month uh, term as uh, prime minister, and he's already, I think, uh, trying to, to to figure out how long he, he has. So, you know, there's a, there are reasons for panic for him as well. And if you compare that to Netanyahu, Netanyahu last May was facing the beginning of his trial, uh, facing the, the, the uh, gradually realizing the impossibility of forming a new coalition and so on. So each and uh, each prime minister, in his way, is challenged by the situation. Bennett's problem right now is that Netanyahu is, you know, um, Netanyahu uh, would stop at almost nothing. You see that mostly the Likud backbenchers were publicly celebrating more or less uh, the bloodshed and trying to to use that politically. But Netanyahu himself, it's interesting to follow his remarks on on uh, social media on his Twitter. Uh, for instance, um, because in some cases you see uh, a sort of a responsible um, reaction, you know, uh, praising the security forces, uh, demanding action and, and, and uh, grieving with the families. And in some cases you see actual incitement against the government. 
I assume it's when Yair has the Twitter handle. Uh, but uh, um, in, in these cases, he's quite, um, um, you know, he's, he's quite uh, hard on the government and he's using this politically. And I think the fact that on top of everything else, um, Bennett has uh, an Islamic movement party uh, led by Abbas inside his coalition makes it even harder for him. There's not enough room for maneuvering with his reactions. For the time being, the, the military uh, operations in the West Bank are limited and Abbas can live with that. If Bennett is pushed to, to show even more force in the West Bank and if there's danger of new escalation in Gaza and Jerusalem, then it will be very, very hard for the government to survive. We should say Abbas is uh, Mansour Abbas, the head of the Ram faction, the Arab-Israeli mm-hmm. Islamist party. And not Mahmoud Abbas, yeah. Right, the Palestinian president. Uh, and Yair uh, is Yair Netanyahu, uh, Netanyahu's son and, well, social media advisor, mm-hmm. I, I guess. That was perhaps too much of uh, inside Israeli baseball, yeah. Okay, sorry about that. No, no, uh, inside Israeli baseball that has uh, wider significance because I think yeah. what you're saying is probably true. There is this uh, kind of split personality between the more responsible Netanyahu mm-hmm. and the highly irresponsible Bibi. And like you said, we've seen both faces uh, in recent weeks. And it has to do with the generation gap inside the family, I would presume, yeah. Right, although I, you know, we remember Netanyahu in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he was young. Doing very... Yeah. <laughs> so Netanyahu back then was a, a different generation, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, last question on this recent uh, terror wave and escalation, and you touched on it earlier, is the reaction by the Israeli media, the, the coverage by the Israeli media, and then by extension, the reaction and the general hysteria by the Israeli public. Um, we've seen, how shall I put this, Amos, slightly uh, irresponsible coverage uh, of the various terror attacks in recent weeks. Um, you know, last week in Tel Aviv, it happened in prime time on a Thursday night, and you had uh, reporters on the streets uh, tailing security forces into buildings. Um, running up and down uh, Dizengov Street in central Tel Aviv, uh, reporting every rumor and every uh, social media innuendo that they came across. Uh, How would you describe both the, I'd say, coverage, I guess, by the Israeli media of this recent escalation? And then, by extension, maybe, how you view the, the... the reaction by the Israeli public to to a terror wave, yes, and a very deadly one. We shouldn't we shouldn't understate it. But uh, sadly, Israel has gone through previous waves of deadly terror attacks. So, how would you how would you put this recent period in historical context? Look, I I, I have to say I agree. I completely agree with your description of the way the the media uh, operated, and I think uh, some red lines were were crossed uh, in in prime time, especially by Channel Twelve News, which is the largest. Uh, TV station in Israel, actually the most important uh, media organization in Israel. Um, My explanation is that it has to do with two things. First, uh, that this happened on prime time in Tel Aviv, where the uh, networks are, uh, uh, some of the network uh, studios are based, and where many of the reporters actually lived. There's a sort of a double standard here. Uh, When something like this happens in the West Bank, then the the media reaction, even the public reaction is, is quite different. It gets worse as um, as you uh, get closer to the Tel Aviv area, and especially in Tel Aviv, there's a tendency to panic if this happens in the middle of Tel Aviv. And you saw that last week um, when uh, there was an attack in Nebak, uh, the week before that, an attack in Nebak, which is close to Tel Aviv, and which is, of course, an ultra-Orthodox uh, town. Again, it was prime time. There were many TV crews. There was a slight sense of panic, but it got even worse once the terrorists actually hit central Tel Aviv. Then you have the fact that many of these reporters are actually younger than me and even younger than you and probably <laughs> less experienced and haven't uh, covered something like this before. You didn't have my uh, old pal uh, 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 Ronnie Daniel, who unfortunately uh, died last year, who had yeah. 50 uh, years of experience. He was the... the military uh, analyst for for channel 12 and you know this guy went through everything you you wouldn't expect him to panic under any circumstances so i'm not saying exactly that the reporters were in panic but there was sort of an overreaction 
Uh, one reporter actually stopped to get her photo on Instagram uh, while chasing the, the the policemen who were chasing the terrorists. And you know, it's there. There are different reactions of different generations of journalists. But my sense, and I, I wrote it in the newspaper as well, is that the Channel 12, 12 especially crossed the line, and and should have been more cautious. Some of the criticism had to do with the fact that faces of uh, uh, members of elite unit of the police and the IDF were, were shown on TV. Uh, some some of this had to do with uh, discussions of tactics. Uh, were, was the fact that they filmed those um, elite units, was it damaging because the, the opponents could see uh, the, the way they operate from too close? But I think in the end, if you're broadcasting to a very large public in a very small country, and everybody is in panic or in some sense of stress over this, you need to be more responsible and more cautious. And you need to think twice before you broadcast everything. There are some cases in which even as a journalist, you need to take one step back. It's not exactly necessary to show the face of the soldier as he's uh, searching an apartment building in Tel Aviv and the terrorist may be lurking uh, on the other side of the door while he's knocking on it. You can take two steps back, and his mother's the, the soldier's mother doesn't need to do to see this live on on TV. And I've talked to people uh, in the networks in, in recent days, and, and they acknowledge that mistakes were made. I'm pretty sure that if something like this, God forbid, happens again, then uh, they will be more cautious about and more restrained about the way they broadcast. Uh, regarding the public. Again, people have forgotten, um, and you know, perhaps it's a good thing. Uh, the, the latest round of attacks, as we mentioned, was mostly 2015, 2016. And the second intifada, which was the worst uh, um, period of violence that we've encountered, uh, ended more or less in 2005. So a lot of the public just don't remember this. If I think of my kids, they, they don't have an experience of, of living under the terrorist threat, of uh, thinking twice before... Uh, riding a bus because they tend to explode uh, uh, because of suicide bombings and so on. This was our everyday experience between 2000 and 2005. But even, you know, if you go back, it more or less started in 94, 95. Uh, so, um, so we have forgotten about that. And I think that people who are less experienced uh, with this tend to panic more. And of course, the media response and the politician response doesn't contribute to, to people reacting in a saner uh, way, in a, a more cautious and, and, and collected way uh, uh, about this. Perhaps it's natural. I, I think that, you know, gradually we learn to, to, to live with that. Just compare this to the different reactions to COVID uh, now and two years uh, earlier. Um, Hopefully, the, the security agencies would uh, would be uh, good enough at their jobs to 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 restrain this uh, wave of attacks anyway. But uh, it's quite clear to me, as somebody who's you know has been covering this since the early '90s, uh, that a lot of this has to do with experience, with uh, that, that perhaps the exaggerated reaction uh, has to do with fear and, and the lack of experience, and the fact that you have most people haven't encountered this before. That's uh, I think a. a pretty fair assessment. Uh, and like you said, hopefully uh, this ends sooner rather than later and that, uh, uh, you know, the, the current public doesn't have more experience with these types of, of attacks. Um, I wanted to change tack a little bit uh, since we have you here, Amos, and shift from the, the escalation, the terror wave inside Israel to Iran. Uh, so I think, you know, before... Palestinian issue uh, came back on the agenda very violently over the past month. Uh, Iran was looming as the the major and the central security issue that most of us were were dealing with. Uh, and really, we're all waiting for Godot here. We're all waiting for a new nuclear deal to be signed or not uh, between the U.S. and the world powers and Iran. Uh, I think we've been waiting for this new deal, I think, since the beginning of the year. Uh, and every time they tell us, oh, this this might be the week and maybe next week, and they're very close. Uh, but aside from all that, I wanted to get your sense of what Israel's position is about a renewed deal, really. Uh, I know we've talked about this before, but it seems that, I guess, over the past month or two, that both Prime Minister Bennett and Foreign Minister Lapid, uh, at least publicly, are, are very against uh, a renewed deal on the terms that are, that are being discussed in, in Vienna. Uh, the Defense Minister Benny Gantz, depending on what day you catch him, may be a bit less adamant 
about any renewed deal, uh, but that IDF military intelligence and many, uh, if not most, former senior security officials here in Israel say a renewed deal is maybe the least worst option uh, with regard to tackling Iran's nuclear program, that having some kind of deal with Iran is better than no deal at all. Um, so what do you think about this general assessment? Is that is that fair about where Israel is coming from, given uh, a possible renewed deal coming down the pike? Again, I, I think what, uh, what you described about the different uh, versions or the different positions among the, the Israeli hierarchy, among the Israeli establishment is, is, is quite uh, accurate. Uh, what we should add is one more thing, and that um, I think is true for everybody from Bennett on the right to the um, uh, ex-generals uh, you mentioned on the left, uh, which is that all of these people acknowledge that there's not much Israel could do to persuade the Biden administration to change its ways. Israel can, uh, you know, can complain about that. Israel can try to convince. It can talk. It can present new intelligence. But in the end, it's very, very clear that Washington has decided. Washington wants a new JCPOA. Uh, it wants it to resemble as much as possible the, the previous one, the agreement signed by President Obama in 2015, and uh, um, the one that President Trump deserted in 2018, pulled out of, um, and that the, whatever Israel says is not too important for the Americans. The main obstacle right now is the Iranians. If uh, you know, um, Biden and, and his uh, diplomats can persuade the Iranians to sign an agreement, and if they can maintain a sense of uh, being hard on Iran regarding the IRGC and the sanctions, and whether it's a Quds Force or all the Revolutionary Guards, then this is enough for Washington. Mostly the fact that this hasn't been signed uh, yet has to do um, with the Iranians moving slowly and not with, uh, with the U.S. And I think that everybody from Bennett to the current generals to the ex-generals um, is quite uh, clear on that, and they understand that this is the situation. Um, for Netanyahu, being on, on the opposition for a change, of course, his version is different, and he keeps complaining that Bennett has uh, surrendered to the Americans, and he keeps uh, mentioning his famous speech at, in Congress in 2015. Well, in the end, uh, that was um, quite a failure as well. Of course, he got a lot, you know, there was a standing, there were many, many standing ovations at that day, but it, it, it didn't help with anything. It didn't help persuade Obama not to sign the, the actual agreement. If I'm not mistaken, it even happened after uh, the, the administration signed the agreement. So, you know, um, Netanyahu did something publicly which caused a lot of interest and so on, and of course caused a lot of anger at that time uh, around the Oval Office, but he, he couldn't change the, the direction of history, if you'd like, or, or, or of American diplomacy. Bennett is saying, look, I'm smarter. I, I understand that the current situation. I understand that I there's no point in fighting the Americans directly. What I can do as much as possible is try to persuade uh, Biden on other issues, whether it's the sanctions on the IRGC, whether it's uh, future cooperation between the U.S. and Israel, and whether it's specific assistance that we need in order to improve the IDF's capability and especially the Air Force capabilities in case things go wrong and we need to uh, unilaterally attack the, the nuclear sites. Uh, he chooses to do this um, low profile as much as possible. It was quite rare a few weeks ago when there was a joint statement by Bennett and Lapid against uh, Biden criticizing the administration regarding the IRGC sanctions. Now, last week, um, Bennett's office um, has presented us with what they uh, seem to feel is a serious uh, achievement, which is they claim that they are persuaded uh, um, the Americans not to pull out of the sanctions. Um, David uh, Ignatius in the Washington Post quoted people from the administration say, saying that this was in fact uh, the, the, uh, Biden, uh, the Biden people's um, current uh, position. And that was immediately after Shimrit Meir, uh, Bennett's close advisor, was in Washington to talk uh, with her American counterparts. And they seem to be quite mm -hmm. satisfied with this specific achievement. Other than that, I think they 
realize that there's not much they can do to stop the Americans if indeed Biden decides to, to go uh, full steam ahead and, and to sign the, the new agreement. So just uh, to remind our listeners, the IRGC is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the elite military force uh, of, of Iran, the Islamic Republic. And there's a big debate, uh, I think, ongoing. It might be the, the last remaining hurdle to any new deal, which is uh, whether to keep the IRGC on the American sanctions list or to take it off. Um, although, to my mind, Amos, I, I think it's mostly symbolic, right? Uh, you know, even if they delist it from certain sanction lists, that other sanctions would still remain in place on the IRGC. So uh, it remains to be seen whether, whether the U.S. administration actually um, stands firm on that position, uh, and that Bennett, I guess, could take credit for it. I, I don't know. It all seems very symbolic to me that it, there, it's almost like this kabuki theater where everyone understands that sanctioning the IRGC on the specific list isn't really substantive, but that politically it might help uh, various actors, I guess, in Israel and maybe the Middle East to, uh, I don't know, sleep better at night. What do you, what do you think? Is that a fair assessment that this is just more? mostly politics and less substance it's mostly politics but there is some substance and this is ha this has to do with the iranians uh, economic situation they've been through a, a terrible period beginning with sanctions first from obama and later on uh, inflicted by by the trump administration the whole campaign of maximum pressure and it hurt their economy badly and and, and then came COVID, uh, which um, uh, was felt uh, very hard in the, it, it was a very tough period for Iran and, and Iranian economy as well. Now, the fact that the oil prices are up because of the war in Ukraine and their expectations of other sanctions being lifted, it's assumed that they will receive uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in, in, in the next few years because of the, uh, the combination of the rise in the oil prices and especially lifting the sanctions. What Israel is saying, look, at least if we... Uh, continue to sanction the IRGC, then it will uh, make it more difficult for, for the Iranians at large and, and, and for the guards specifically to help organizations like Hezbollah and, and Islamic Jihad in, in Gaza and the different Shiite militias in, in Iraq uh, as well. But yeah, I, I, it's not all smoke and mirrors, but yeah, I, some of this has to do uh, with images, with maintaining Bennett's image and, and, and so on. And, and you have to notice how uh, um, frequently, Bennett and Gantz talk about Iran. It's always will always have Iran. It's always an issue where you can <laughs> act tough and you can uh, you know discuss uh, serious policy matters and so on. Well, I'm, I'm not you know I'm not underestimating the threat in any way, but I think our more uh, urgent problems right now are the fact that uh, you know people tend to to to, to shoot. Um, to suddenly in, uh, at, uh, at other people in Tel Aviv. This is a more urgent issue right now for, for most of the Israeli public. Uh, but it's always, the, 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 you know, whenever Bennett or Gantz visit the Air Force or elite units and so on, it's Iran, Iran, Iran. And it, it's always reported on TV. It's always nice to talk about how much is actually done. That's a different matter. And I think the last time we spoke, I'm not sure, but if I remember correctly, we discussed this uh, argument, this ongoing argument or blame game between Netanyahu and Bennett regarding who uh, neglected to prepare for uh, for a worst case scenario with Iran. And I think as, as, as I read more and more about this and, and hear more about this, it's quite clear that uh, Bennett has a case here, that Netanyahu actually, while encouraging Trump to pull out of the agreement and applying a maximum pressure on Trump regarding this, actually neglected to prepare the army for the uh, worst-case scenario in which those sanctions would not break the spirit of the Iranians and in which they actually get closer to a bomb than they ever were before. Which I think has is, is actually happened, that after 2018... Mm -hmm. That's true, Bennett, yeah. This is Bennett's description, and he may be, you know, he may be exaggerating some details, but generally speaking, he's quite accurate about this. Right. It doesn't uh, stop Netanyahu from getting up uh, in almost every public speech and mm -hmm. claiming that he uh, he was the only one that stopped Iran and that uh, this government's position on Iran is is very weak. Uh, mm -hmm. But but again, I think Netanyahu uh, pressuring, convincing, whatever you want to say. 
uh, Trump to withdraw from the original deal in 2018, uh, the subsequent policy by both the Americans and, and the Netanyahu-led government here uh, didn't succeed. That Iran moved forward with its nuclear program, uh, its support for the proxies all across the Middle East didn't really stop. Um, so I don't know, I don't know why uh, why certain actors, both here and in America, want to continue with uh, with a policy that clearly hasn't succeeded. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, with Netanyahu again, a lot, so part of it is ideology, part of it is propaganda. And it's also an easy way in which to attack the current government. He keeps uh, repeating this phrase that the Bennett is weak on Iran, and I assume that at least the the, um, the Likud hardcore probably buys into this uh, argument. I think maybe it's safe to say not only the Likud hardcore, but maybe uh, certain hardcore elements uh, in other parts mm-hmm. of the world too. I would assume which... so. Yeah. <laughs> um, Amos, final question on on Iran. Uh, with or without a deal, uh, we may, and you've written about this previously, we may be seeing a maybe new Israeli approach to the Iran regional threat, at least, under Bennett and this new Israeli government. New, it's been in power now ten, nine, ten months. Uh, you've detailed what I like to call the octopus doctrine. Uh, what Bennett likes to say is that in the past, Israel went after the the tentacles of the octopus, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, various Shiite militias all across the Middle East, but that Israel never really went after the head of the octopus, i.e. Iran itself. Um, do you think that there has been a genuine shift in Israeli strategy here? Uh, we've seen various incidents and events over the past, say, two or three months where um, Israel reportedly has attacked uh, inside Iran, uh, most famously a, a drone base in in northwestern Iran. Um, so in your sense, do you think there has been a genuine shift on the Israeli side? Are we, are we heading towards a genuine shift? Uh, I don't think so. I think these are uh, perhaps not too slight, but these are um, uh, specific limited changes in Israeli policy, which may have been uh, a bit more aggressive than it was under Netanyahu. But there's a lot of rhetoric there. And I think, again, this allows uh, Bennett to uh, direct the conversation towards something which is easier for him to to handle than accusations of being soft on Iran uh, regarding the the nuclear agreement. And as we said, um, when we talk about the, the possible a uh, new agreement being signed, then he has a very limited influence over uh, things happening. It's easier for him to push forward with Israeli cyber strikes or sabotage missions and so on, as long as they're kept a little bit, um, um, you know, and, and, and you're not, you don't know exactly what's happening there. There are all kinds of information are being leaked, but usually Israel does not... Uh, take clear responsibility for the different attacks and he can you know he can brag about this with actually without actually releasing the details is it too important uh, for the um, Iranians I'm, I'm not that if it's that important for them I'm, I'm, I'm not sure uh, apparently this attack on the base uh, producing the the drones or in in Western Iran was something more important but then it has this you know he gave this octopus speech. I think three or four years ago, uh, as a member of the government. Right. Later on, he talked of the death of a thousand cuts, which is something I pe- I think he picked up from Kung Fu Panda, one of those movies uh, he watched with his kids. <laughs> so I, you know, it's it sounds nice. It's important. It's good for uh, perhaps that Israel is is taking the initiative against Iran up to a point, but it doesn't change the reality uh, completely. And. Uh, um, it's easier for him to appear tough on Iran uh, on these issues than to uh, convince uh, um, Biden not to to go on go ahead and sign the agreement. And of course, there are always the possibilities that something would go wrong, um, especially in Syria and Lebanon. And you know, this campaign actually began under Netanyahu, 2012, 2013. There were the first strikes, first at convoys smuggling weapons, sophisticated weapons from Iran through Syria to Hezbollah in Lebanon. 
and later on at all kinds of Iranian bases or militia bases uh, inside Syria. But how successful uh, were we? It's, you know, it's, there's an open discussion about that. Uh, did it really change everything? The fact that the Hezbollah apparently is producing, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, accurate uh, missiles inside Lebanon means that we haven't exactly succeeded. Um, you know, we haven't passed this test in flying colors. So it, it's more complicated than just saying, okay, Bennett is tougher on Iran than Netanyahu, and he's always on the attack and so on. There are some advantages that Israel has, but I don't think that we've changed the course of this uh, um, strategic battle with Iran uh, by, um, um, you know, by attacking more, whether it's in Iran or in other countries in the region. So for the record, you don't see a major shift in Israeli strategy vis-a-vis Iran? It's, it's a slight shift, I would say, not a major one. Okay. Uh, Amos, final question for real this time. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on the Ukraine war. Uh, and, you know, a lot has been talked about even on this podcast about Israeli government policy vis-a-vis the Ukraine war and, and Bennett's uh, mediation efforts. But I wanted to ask you about the military dimension of it. Um. I know you've written about this and you've had discussions with various uh, current and former senior Israeli military officials, but from the Israeli military perspective, how surprised are they that Russia has ostensibly failed so miserably uh, in, in this war now going on over a month that this vaunted Russian military machine seems to uh, be taking severe losses in Ukraine? They're very surprised. Um, having spoken to the different generals, uh, many of them still in uniform in the beginning of the war, they kept saying, look, uh, we're, not, we're not in favor of Russia in any way. We understand that they're the occupiers, that they're on the attack against innocent civilians and so on. But you will just wait and see. They're stronger than they seem. They're very, very aggressive. We've seen them in Syria. They talk a lot about what the Israelis call uh, the uh, Gerasimov doctrine, which is not exactly a a doctrine, but it's the way the the Russian army performs in its different wars. And they they talked about that almost as if they've admired, professionally admired the Russians. So there was huge surprise by the fact that the the Russians were so ill-prepared. I think that just like almost everybody else, what the Israeli generals got wrong uh, was that they didn't, they they underestimated the the force of the, and the effect of the will to fight, the actual will to resist. And I think that the the spirit of the Ukrainians, the fact that they didn't want to be uh, returned to to the arms of Mother Russia, that they saw themselves as a different nation, and especially the fact that they want to live as free men in a democracy. That was the, the game changer here, more than anything else. It's true that the Russians were ill-prepared. It's true that uh, Putin lied to his army and that the soldiers didn't know that they were going. It's true that there were many tactical and logistical uh, mishaps and, and, and mistakes being made. But on top of everything else, I think that the lesson here is that the Ukrainians uh, were right about this, that they fought bravely because they had something to defend, and that's the most important factor. Having said that, you have to discuss other implications, whether it's uh, the future of uh, uh, ground forces, whether it's the, the use of tanks, whether it's the the fact that the Ukrainians were so good at using Turkish uh, drones to, to attack the uh, Russian tanks, if you look back just a year earlier to the war uh, between Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia over Nagorno-Karabakh, at that time, these were Israeli drones, attack drones that were used very effectively by the Azeris. So here you see a repeat of that, and you see how um, um, how weak the, the, actual, the tanks are, how actually they're exposed completely to uh, attacks from the air. And this is something to think about for the future. And there is another point I think that we should make, which is uh, the fact that this takes so long and that the Western response is so harsh is bad news for Israel. Because in the end, I think the average uh, TV viewer, especially if he's liberal, whether it's in the US or uh, France or Belgium or the UK, 
if they watch the next war, next Israeli war in Lebanon and Syria, or in Lebanon or uh, Gaza, uh, immediately I think they'll compare that uh, to, to Russia's war in Ukraine. It will be very hard to make our case, which is, look, the Palestinians are not Ukrainians. We're launching rockets at, at us, we're sending knife attacks, we're sending suicide bombers, and so on. In the eyes of the average Western viewer, this all looks the same. So I think Israel would have, the, the clock would begin ticking against us if we um, uh, decide to send in ground forces into um, urban territories, into urban terrain, the clock would start ticking much, much earlier and faster. And this is this is dangerous for Israel. This is something we have to consider because as you know, most of the plans of action, the operational plans for the IDF for future possible wars, the, the scenario is always the same. Uh, Hezbollah launches thousands of rockets towards Israeli uh, civilian population towards our home front, and then we have no choice but to attack with the air force and then to send in the ground forces. How do you do that and, and still maintain international support? This becomes very, very hard to do. And making our case, telling the world that we're not Russians, that we actually do not kill civilians intentionally, that we're only defending our own civilians and so on, it's harder to convince the, the, the general uh, population uh, regarding this. So food for thought for, uh, for future escalations uh, as we're dealing with a, a serious escalation, I guess, closer to home here in, in Israel and Jerusalem and the West Bank. Uh, Amos, uh, with that, I wanted to wish you uh, upcoming Chag Sameach. Uh, hopefully it's a quiet uh, Passover and Easter and Ramadan, uh, both here and in other parts of the world. Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Okay, that was Amos Harel. Many thanks to him once again for his generous time and insights. Also, thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe. And as always, thank you for listening and happy holidays to everyone. Still